There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. Strive Live and it's time to talk legal. We're going to introduce Ludmilla Yamalba. Drive Live talks legal. Just a reminder that if you would like to address Ludmilla directly, you've got just under 40 minutes to do that. She's going to be here just until 5 o'clock. Uh, she is from Yamalaba and Plethka. They're based in JLT and we've not seen a stump yet, so you never know today. Nice to see you. Don't jinx me, please. Uh, no, I'm, I'm <laughs> just once I want to see you like, oh, I can't do that, but it's never going to happen. Uh, nice to see you, Ludmilla. Hey, today, let's, to uh, let's, let's start with a question for you today, and this is an interesting topic, I think, because it's a grey area that I suppose lots of us look at and think, well, I wrote that, therefore it's mine. But it's not necessarily true. So, let's state this. Employers and companies, how do they, uh, how they work with their employees or their freelancers or their service providers? Let me paint you a quick scenario. I am a freelance journalist, perhaps not the best freelance journalist in the world. That's a different matter. I write an article for the Dubai Eye website. And somebody pays you for it? And they pay me, remarkably, they pay me for it. And it's about Dubai parks and resorts. We've got a big day out and I dress it up beautifully and say what's going on. Um, and then I would use that somewhere else because I'm doing work for Dubai Parks and Resorts on another website to provide news, for example. Who owns what I originally wrote? And in this instance, I'm freelance. Let's in, say. Yes. So, uh, so number one, the default is, I mean, generally speaking, when you're talking about creative content, the default is that the rights to a particular content uh, are they're copyrighted. And therefore, whoever the, the author of, um, of that particular content is, it, it has copyrights to that content. Now, what that means, it, it, but it's sort of the default rule. Um, however, whenever you're being hired by somebody to create content, to do um, something, to uh, and, and you use the resources of that employer or that company uh, to create that content, it's not necessarily the case that you are now the owner of that content because, once again, unless the contract provides otherwise. Right. So unless there's a specific provision in the agreement, let's say, between you and Dubai Eye, that whatever that content you have created at the expense of Dubai Eye actually belongs to you and that you can reuse it, that is not by the default interpretation of who owns that content. In other words, uh, just because you wrote it does not mean it's yours. Mm. Uh, so therefore, you cannot just go and reuse it for someone else because ultimately Dubai Eye is, is the, provi- the, the provider who sponsored it and paid for you to create that content again unless your agreement provides otherwise Uh, that being said there are a lot of people out there who believe that whatever it is they create while they are working for someone either in the employment relationship or in the freelance uh, relationship that uh, by default whatever they create is theirs but it's the actually the rule is the general rule is the other way around so the default is as long as somebody else pays for it it's their property unless you had previously agreed otherwise okay so that's that instance right now, say I uh, have my own website and a uh, proprietary copy that I've written is on my website and it is then taken and used on another website in some way. This is slightly off topic, but I'm interested. You've, you've piqued my interest here. Um, and it's ripped and it's plagiarized. How do I protect my own copy when I see it on another website word for word? How do I then... 
who do I go after for that? Sure. And so there, there are two aspects. One is sort of legal, uh, legal right um, that protects your copyright, your content, and the other one is commercial. So right. what can you do about it? Uh, so in that particular case, is you're the freelancer, you're your own uh, boss, you've created content that obviously belongs to you because nobody else paid for it. And so it's your property. Now you have um, somebody else has taken it and obviously uh, is selling it uh, or mis-selling, is misrepresenting it now as theirs. So there are two angles on that particular offense, if you will. One is civil and one is criminal. So uh, on the one hand, you can also claim that the, that particular company is misrepresenting because they're holding something um, as they're theirs, which it, it is not. Uh, so, but you as the as the party involved, you will not be able to really recover anything from this because criminal cases, it's it's basically the state that takes the claim against uh, the, um, the, 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 the claimant or against the offender. Uh, but you financially, you cannot recover anything. Uh, however, civilly, you can also you also have a civil claim that you can bring against that particular person for misusing your information. But the key here, and this is very important, because unlike other jurisdictions, you need to actually have suffered damages, and these damages need to have been to, have, to be supported somehow by evidence that it is uh, is admissible in court in order for you to actually claim damages. So just because somebody took your content and misused it. There might be some criminal sanctions to them uh, for misrepresentation, but in terms of civil remedies, um, which you will have to pursue through civil courts, it's not necessarily the case that you actually have a claim, because if you cannot prove any kind of actionable damages, for example, that your reputation has been destroyed, or that somehow you lost a client because that particular content, they thought it was exclusive to them, and now it's everywhere. So unless you can demonstrate that there was some sort of a direct connection to your loss of business or the damages that you've suffered, um, and um, that that connection was actually substantiated by some kind of uh, an actual expense or actual loss, then you don't really have a claim. Aside from the indignation that somebody's stolen what you've written, it I, I want to come back emotional, to this yes. because this is uh, it's a real minefield, and it's far more important now in the world of social digital media than it was 10, 15 years ago, or seems to be much more prevalent. Let's uh, quickly go to uh, the phone line. So I think it's Rain on line five. Am I uh, pronouncing your name correctly, Rain? Yes. Okay. Look, good to have you on. You've got a question for Ludmilla. Full-time job at the moment, I'm reading. Yes, so I have a full-time job, but uh, I'm also sponsoring my parents here in the country Um, uh, I do uh, part-time jobs as well and I really want like many times I wanted to resign to quit my job and just uh, concentrate on the freelancer work but I have two concerns first I'm not sure what are the requirements to have a freelancer visa and then the second question would be can I still sponsor my family having a, a freelancer visa uh, sure. Well, a freelance visa is, um, it can depend on which jurisdiction you are, because not all uh, the jurisdictions or not all the zones offer the freelancer visa. But in general terms, what a freelancer visa refers broadly here is basically setting up your own company. And that company, and there are two options for you to do that. So there are certain companies, certain uh, uh, economic zones that offer a license. It's called a freelance license. Uh, but not all the economic zones offer that. And even when you do a uh, if you do take that particular license, it may be limiting or limited in terms of what you can do. So generally speaking, the other option is that if you, as long as you open your own company, and let's say it's a consultancy, I don't, I'm not sure what your area of expertise is, expertise is then ultimately, and, and this, by the way, applies whether you have a freelance 
license or any other license. So you could have, for example, a consulting license uh, and um, that uh, in, in your area of expertise, let's say it's marketing or IT or what have you. So once you open that company, either as a general consulting or as a freelance, then you're opening it as a shareholder, as the owner of the company. Now, as the owner of the company, you can sponsor uh, anyone else. You can sponsor dependents. Normally, as an employee, as you would know, since you're sponsoring your parents right now, there is, and especially as a woman, and there are requirements in terms of your salary and... Um and that's sort of another of a number of other variables. As an owner of the business, now you're an investor. So there are fairly limited restrictions in terms of what you can and cannot do for sponsoring your dependents. So yes, you can definitely sponsor your dependents then, but you'll you'll most likely have to cancel them first and then and then reapply for them again. And with regards to what you can do under this this license, obviously it depends on the scope of the license or the specific licensing activity that you take. But it usually there are a lot of licensing activities that are quite broad that will allow you to do to act as a freelancer or as a contractor or a subcontractor or what have you. At that point, you become basically a service provider. Rain, there will be there will be a cost, but it's a cost, I guess, if you're looking after your parents, it's worth paying. Yes, actually, yeah, it was not easy to sponsor them at the first place, as she mentioned, because I'm a woman. Uh, but my concern is that I'm, I'm not, I don't want to open a company. I thought that there is a, a freelancer individual, like a, a license. It's basically, I mean, in, in relevant terms, it's, it's about the same. So it's just it's called a freelancer license, but in order to have that, you need to open a company. So you, there isn't there isn't really, it's not it you know it's it, there will be a cost to it. There will be an administrative process. It's it's very much basic. It's the same as opening a company. So if you are looking at this option uh, if, for purposes of avoiding paying the kind of expenses that you would otherwise avoid, then that's not that's not the so the the option that's available out there. Rain's a lot to but- consider, but thank you for calling. Appreciate it. NLT is here. Ludmilla Malaba is here as well. Drive live. Talks legal. This is what we're doing. Let's talk to Sam, who is on line six. Afternoon, Sam. Hi, good afternoon, guys. Good to have you on. So you want to talk about moving employment and also ever popular topic on here, employment (laughs) bans, Uh, Sam. What did you want to ask, Ludmilla? That's right, yeah. I mean, I do understand uh, there's no sort of employment ban these days if someone has got a degree or certain qualification in place. Now, what I want to ask is if someone moves employment on, on a constant basis, for example, within free zones or within mainland, so let's say being in one employment for, I don't know, four months, five months, and then move across to, to another one, is there any ban in place uh, when it comes to short employment uh of an individual between free zones, as I said, or, 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 or mainland companies. Uh, okay, so now in terms of the employment ban, there is, I guess there are two types of employment bans. One is that where you cannot actually work uh, under the Ministry of Labor, um, so you cannot really work um, for any company that is covered by the Ministry of La- Labor. And the other one, uh, imp- the ban that would apply within a free zone and they're slightly different but generally speaking the ban that we're talking about and the ban that uh, traditionally we've we've talked about where there's an automatic ban that only applies to those employees that are covered by, by the Ministry of Labor and those are the employees that work for non-free zone companies so um, so if you have a ban for example from an uh, from a company an LLC company uh, you can still go and work in a free zone um, so, so that's, I mean, and that's just irrespective of, you know, how many positions you've changed and how many sort of companies you might have switched in between. Uh, now, 
then if you're within a free zone, for example, you work for one, um, uh, let's say, TCOM company, and now you're switching to another, uh, and if it is, um, uh, most of the time, the authorities ask for an NOC from, pre- from the previous employer. So in that particular case, uh, I mean, unless you have terminated, you have ended your contract, let's say if it was a limited contract and you've served your, your time and there are no... Um, uh, there are no sort of contentious issues. Uh, then, in that particular case, you would you may have to get a rec- uh, the NOC from the from the current employer. And then, if you don't that, then the free zone will f- will not um, uh, let you work in that particular free zone. But it's a very limited ban, and it's only I think the free zones are being quite conservative in terms of how often they applied and for how long. Um, so, but once again, if you have a fr- uh, ban in that free zone, then you can go work anywhere else. So, in other words, there is no centralized system, or there is no centralized database. Among amongst the different free zones, the different companies, and the different licensing authorities in terms of how often you switch your job. However, if you do work, for example, if you join an LLC company, and that's under the Ministry of Labor, and you sign a limited contract, and let's say for two years, and then eight months into it, you uh, you cancel or you, or you terminate. Um, so often, even if you have a degree, there's an automatic ban. And, but that ban you can lift if you have the right uh, qualifications and basically the right salary. Um, so in some cases, it's not true that that ban does not exist at all. Uh, if in limited contracts, um, often the ban still applies automatically, but it can be lifted with certain circumstances. Sam, okay. your, your thoughts? Uh, a quick one. So the NOC uh, that you highlighted, um, so if it's from one free zone to another free zone, and the second free zone still asks, to get the NOC from first free zone, that's one. And secondly, this NOC is is that very much a free zone to free zone requirement? Yeah, let, let me clarify. So the free zones, the NOC, uh, the free zone NOCs are only applicable to, to that particular free zone. So it is not true that let's say if you go from TCOM into uh, DMCC, uh, that the DMCC can ask you for an NOC from the T- from TCOM. That does not exist. There is no such procedure. There's nothing in the law. So it's only within a particular free zone. So if you're switching jobs within the same free zone, then the, the authority may ask you for an NOC from your previous employer, but not otherwise. Within the free zones, you can move all you want. Sam, it's good to hear from you. Appreciate you coming on today. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Okay, that's Sam. Let's move to texting. Yeah, we have this text in for you, Ludmilla, from Mike. It says, a private school in Sharjah has not supplied resident visas for new employees who began in September, so seven months ago. First of all, is the school responsible to reimburse employees for border visa runs each month? Uh, must an employee go on such border runs during the weekend and may the employee use a work day without losing salary? It's a very loaded question. I tell you because the the underlying premise is um, is wrong. And that is a school uh, employing um, teachers or whoever employees without actually sponsoring them. So and this particular issue is governed by the UAE federal law. So it's not uh, Emirate based. It is under the uh, it's, it's, it's unified uh, across the, the country. And that is if if anyone um, is working in the UAE to work legally, they must be sponsored by um, the company or the, the for whom they work. Um, so it's not even just uh, you know, it gets even more complicated. It's not it's not even just having a UAE residency or, or employment visa, but it's also being sponsored by the right sponsor. So in this particular case, what the school is doing wrong to begin with, I mean, it's, it's employing people without providing them with residence visas. I mean, that is just that is just illegal. Period. Now. The other issue is the issue of cost. Um, so, 
and that is uh, there's another law as in the UAE once again it's it's it's, um, it's a UAE law and that is that any expenses any costs that are associated with making an employee work in the country legally uh, are the responsibility of the company so any kind of undertakings or agreements uh, that often actually we see and and we know exist between the uh, the company and the employee that in the event for example the employee leaves you know how many months or so after that they will reimburse the company for the visa expenses and anything related to making them basically an official employee uh, are invalid because all those expenses are always the responsibility of the company um, so um, so in this particular case, obviously the border visa runs. I mean, it's. I mean, this is sort of it's. It's a marginal question under the circumstances because the whole relationship here is illegal, and the repercussions can be quite severe because you are not allowed to work in this country on the tourist visa. So all these employees who are doing the visa runs, how are they here in the country? So most likely they're on on tourist visas, uh, and therefore they're not allowed to work legally. If the authorities, and that would be the immigration authorities, if they ever find out they will penalize both parties and usually it's a 50 it's 50 000 dirhams uh, to the employer to the company wow. for every violation so if you have a number of employees so it would be 50 000 times however employees you're employing illegally but also there are uh, there could be some severe penalties um to the employees and depending on what sort of visa that they're here they hear quote unquote working whether it's a tourist visa whether it's a sort of an kind of without a visa um uh, you know passport where let's say if you have a british passport you don't need to get a, get a visa or you're working on a visa uh, uh, of someone else in those particular cases I mean so the difference is a little, a, little, a little bit different in terms of penalties but it can be as severe as deportation and we have seen this over and over again so if you are as, as, a, as an individual you're found to be working here let's say on a tourist visa uh, for someone else um, or I guess working here period uh, you will be deported and the deportation is for life and that's in addition to the financial penalties which you know, can be anywhere from two to seven thousand dirhams and and then, and we've seen people. This this happens quite fast, and it's quite actually severe because they, you know, they are first being put in jail, and then, and then, and then straight from jail taken to the airport. Uh, I mean, after once the judgment has been issued, so it's not a joke. And um, I would, I would, I'm less concerned about the school, more concerned about the the individuals that are working uh, under these conditions because it, it is them who will suffer most. I think it's safe to say we are full on uh, this particular segment of the programme today. Drive Live Talks Legal. Millie Oliver is here. Let's go to uh, another question that came in by text uh, a few moments ago, actually. Um, I'm an art freelancer. I visit various schools. And this is back to our original point this afternoon, Ludmilla. The issue is the material I write and come up with is sometimes seen by other staff and used. At certain times, shadow teachers that attend take a picture of the lesson. Now, I've been strict in saying these are private lessons. There are no pictures allowed here. because That's just theft of a, a plan, I guess. But it's very difficult to contain the intellectual property. Is there anything that this person can do? Well, in practical terms, it's difficult because um, any third parties that... Because what you're looking for, I guess, again, there's always the civil and there's the criminal uh, angle. So in uh, from the civil standpoint, it will be difficult for you to enforce any kind of right for compensation because these are not uh, these are third parties. These are not parties with whom you actually have a contractual arrangement. So, for example, if it if it is the school that's doing this and it's um, in co- uh, contrary to your instructions and you are suffering because of it, you're losing money, then you can bring a civil claim 
claim against the school. But with any of these sort of third party uh, bystanders, uh, then you don't really have a contractual relationship with them. Now, you can bring a criminal case against them for, uh, in, in, among other things, for example, for fi- violating cyber law. And it's and that cyber law is anything that, that any kind of information that a property that is being illegally transmitted through information technology. Mm. So anytime you take a picture these days, <laughs> very few people take pictures actually with anything other than their phones. Um, and then obviously if you're posting any of this, then you would bring, you could bring a, a criminal case under the cyber law. Uh, and then cyber law actually does have f- fairly hefty penalties. But again, these are the penalties, these are fines that go to the government, not to the individual. And even if something is being done uh, that is not, um, uh, that's not, that does, does not involve information technology, there is always recourse um, under the penal code. And it's basically, it's your know, theft of, let's say, intellectual property. But it, to be honest with you, in practical terms, it's very difficult to be able to prove that, um, um, that basically that's your property and then there's whatever the restrictions were and what people are doing with it. Um, and even more difficult to, to prove how you might have suffered this in terms of actual damages to be able to try to uh, pursue a claim in court. So uh, my recommendation is just be very, very vigilant about mm. the mater- you know, how, who you disseminate the material to and who attends these um, sessions. And um, I mean, unfortunately, that's basically, that's basically all I can recommend at this point in time. It's tough love, isn't it? Unfortunately, it is. In the end, you know you did it. But what really <coughs> good does that do, I suppose? Uh, it's not Adam on the phone. I think it should be Peter. Uh, Peter, was I uh, referring to you as Adam? If I was, I apologise. No problem, Tim. If you uh, call me call me Derek for the purposes of this conversation, I'll be fine with that. What did you want to ask Lord Miller, Peter? Okay, so I've been working for the company for nine years. I have an unlimited contract. Now, in my employer's contract, which I signed only once in the beginning, uh, there's one clause stating that if I ever leave the company, I'm not allowed to go to any opposition. Now, I don't work in government or anything serious like that. It's in sales. Um, now, in my ministry labor uh, contract, nothing is stated that I'm not allowed to go to any opposition. Is that valid? And can the company sue me or come after me if I do decide to... Um, to resign. Sure. So, so there are two sort of issues. One is you have two contracts. You have an employ- You have a private contract with a company, and you have a government contract. And there's a somewhat of a discrepancy between the two because one has the non-competition restriction, the other one doesn't. Now, in general terms, the courts look at both contracts. So it's not true just because you have an official contract uh, that they w- they will only enforce that government contract. The courts will actually look at the actual circumstances of, of the relationship and will look at any relevant evidence uh, that supports the terms uh, of of that relationship and this case, it would be the private and the government contract. So therefore, that non-competition uh, clause that you're referring to will be, is part of your employment agreement. Now, with regards to the enforcement of non-competition, it, that's something else. So uh, in general, in the UAE, just like so many other jurisdictions, um, the non the properly drafted non-competition clauses can be enforced. However, there are several, um, there are several limitations and they're quite strict. One, the non-competition has to be very strictly and very narrowly drafted, so it cannot be um, uh, unreasonably broad. In your case, sounds like well, if it's if it says you cannot go work for competition, well, wh- what else are you going to do? So it sounds like it's, exactly. it's overly broad. And I will tell you, even uh, clauses, and we've seen clauses that are, are that at least on, pers- on 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 the surface seem to be more t- narrowly t- uh, drafted, but they include all of the UAE. The courts usually find that to be overly broad because all of the UAE is a small. It's because it's a small country. So how are you going to limit somebody? You basically 
basically precluding them from working in the UAE. And that's even in the more narrowly drafted contract. So generally speaking, in order for non-competition to be enforceable, it has to be narrowly drafted and it has to be reasonable, number one. Number two, and more importantly, is, is that um, the, in the UAE, there is not a recourse in courts uh, for what's called usually in other jurisdictions, jurisdictions referred as preliminary injunction or, or an injunctive order. And that's an equitable relief where, for example, a court will issue an order uh, forbidding somebody from doing something or you know ordering them from uh, to, to do something so in this case uh, the courts here do not have jurisdiction to issue an order saying you cannot work for a particular company and so therefore the only recourse and that is in the event you have a reason there's a reasonable comp- non-competition agreement is the is the um, uh, is compensation for actual damages in other words the company has to wait for you to have joined the competition you have to basically work there and and the company as a result of you working there the company has to have suffered damages and they need to have evidence to show that those ex- those damages are directly linked to your uh, to, to your join you joining this competition and I guess to your role in the company and only then they will be able to bring a case for actual damages but in in practical terms it's very difficult to ever and we have not yet seen a case where uh, companies have had sufficient evidence to do that and and you know once you once they've suffered damages at that point from in, for many of them it's just too late because the idea is that they want you to they want to prevent you from going somewhere but here there's no such measure okay peter understood thanks a lot much appreciated good to talk to you appreciate you calling that's uh, all we've got time for today unfortunately our drive live talks legal still loads of questions to get to we will hold them over but uh, uh, and we'll start with those next week but as i said try and get questions in as quick as possible ludmilla yamalaba always a pleasure thank you thank you there's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com.